Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 90, Liot Lebanon, Bad Character, Tragic Errors, and Deep Ignorance. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. On the show today is Liat Levinon, a lecturer in criminal law at King's College in London. Liat's paper, entitled Bad Character, Tragic Errors, and Deep Ignorance, examines the development of and current issues associated with the use of character evidence in the United Kingdom. In particular, my conversation with Liat today takes a turn towards philosophical notions of aesthetics and ethics, examining not just the operation of character evidence rules in the UK, but also the moral implications of admitting or excluding character evidence, implications that have import for every system of justice around the globe. Liat, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex, and, and thank you very much for the invitation. I'm, I'm very happy to be here online with you. Yeah, we're, we are thrilled to have you on the podcast. So your paper, which is just fascinating, examines whether evidence of a defendant's bad character should be admissible at trial. Now, this, of course, is an issue that really pervades evidence law. And I'm curious, just at the, at the top of our conversation, what led you to this topic? Was it kind of a, a general interest, or did you have a, a specific impetus to write about character evidence? So, actually, it, it started with my work on sexual history evidence that goes back to my PhD. And when I worked on sexual history evidence, I used Bayesian methods in order to show that the evidence is, in most cases, irrelevant. Now, bad character evidence seems to have a very similar structure. It is information about a person's past, and from this information, we draw some inferences about their future behavior. But here, the Bayesian analysis actually leads to the conclusion that the evidence is relevant. And the literature and the law in the UK have indeed extended admissibility. And still, something felt uncomfortable for me. And I suspected that we were missing something there and that the Bayesian analysis could not capture everything that was going on there. And I just wanted to explore this. Well, it's really a fascinating approach. And and your paper begins, actually with a brief account of kind of the development or the evolution of the law surrounding character evidence in the UK. So first, if you would, walk us through the UK's common law approach to character evidence. Was there historically a broad exclusion to character evidence in the UK? So in the common law, the starting point was indeed a rule of exclusion of bad character evidence, and this rule was rationalized in different ways at different times. For a long time, the focus was on the possible prejudicial effect of the evidence. But this rule from the day it was established always had exceptions. It was never an absolute rule that said all bad character evidence under all circumstances is inadmissible. There were exceptions. And Leah, just following up on that point, what were a few of the examples of the exceptions or perhaps permissible purposes of character evidence in the common law? So I think there were 
several exceptions, and they had some common characteristics. One common characteristic of the exceptions where bad character evidence was actually admissible was that, first of all, as Mike Redmine has noted, the evidence was admissible where the defendant was using what we call confession and avoidance defenses. So whenever the defendants said something like, yes, but, the law immediately allowed the prosecution to introduce bad character evidence to refute the defendant's but. Now, confession and avoidance is a technique that is very helpful for the prosecution, actually. The defendant admits most of the facts, and therefore there is much less for the prosecution to prove. And when the defendant helps the prosecution in this way, what we see is that the defendant is failing herself very transparently. So I think one set of exceptions was characterized by this self-failure by the defendant. And under this big category of self-failure, what I would also add is that bad character evidence was allowed in cases of modus operandi where the defendant creates a very unique criminal fingerprint. And here too, what we see is blunt self-failure by the defendant, even if this time not in the form of confession and avoidance, but in, in another way. So you also note in your paper that there's been something of an evolution, or, or to borrow your language here, a, quote, shift of focus to character evidence in the UK that began with some of these key decisions that you kind of touched on there and culminated in the enactment of the Criminal Justice Act. So if you would, describe that evolution or that shift that's occurred in the UK. So to start with, if we look at the common law, if we look at the decisions, we don't see in uh, the common law a very explicit discussion of probative values of prosecution evidence. This is just out of the picture. What they discuss are different elements, like the aim of the evidence. But then we start seeing more and more decisions that revolve around this point exactly, around probative value of prosecution evidence. So at first, the focus is only on the probative power of the prosecution evidence that is supposed to be complemented by bad character evidence. So when the case against the defendant is already strong, the common law makes bad character evidence admissible. And it makes it admissible either have a side effect of introducing this already strong evidence that simply cannot be introduced without revealing the defendant's bad character, or alternatively, it makes bad character evidence admissible as an independent addition to other existing strong evidence against the defendant, for example, eyewitness testimony. And then in the UK, the shift to probative value is completed with the legislation of the Criminal Justice Act 2003. And the Act sets seven gateways to the introduction of bad character evidence. And the most significant one is obviously gateway D, that addresses not the probative value of other prosecution evidence, but actually directly the probative value of the available piece of bad character evidence. And this gateway makes the evidence admissible where it is relevant to an important matter in issue between the defendant and the prosecution. So basically, the evidence is, if it is probative, then it is admissible. So we're coming now to the heart of your paper with that as a little bit of background. 
And you note that there are different types of errors that can be made at trial. And certain errors are, to borrow your words here, tragic. So let's build to that claim of tragic errors at trial. First, what are the different type of trial errors that might occur? So I guess we could draw different distinctions here, but the one that I was using in the article and the, the one that is most helpful for me is the distinction between oaths that are very sad or unfortunate chance events on the one hand, and on the other hand, oaths that are what I called profoundly tragic. Now, a trial error, and some would say especially a false conviction, is always very sad, always very unfortunate, and always very frustrating. And we can think of all kinds of false convictions because of misidentification or false convictions because the defendant's case just happens to fall within the fraction of cases where DNA evidence actually leads to the wrong conclusions. It's always sad, always frustrating. But if false convictions becomes tragic, well, it seems as if the defendant was fated to become a convicted criminal despite every effort to the contrary, no matter what she does, her fate chases her, knocks on her door, and she is a convicted criminal. So you clarify your argument here by imagining a defendant who has been convicted based on past misconduct, based on character evidence, if you will. So walk us through that example and what it reveals about this type of character or propensity evidence. Okay, so let's try to think about the defendant who is falsely convicted based on bad character evidence. Let's think how it all started for her. So in her past, this defendant made an error. She committed some crime. This crime commission then put her in the clause of the recidivism statistics. We know that once a person commits crime, this person is significantly more likely to commit similar crimes than a random member of the population. Now, what these statistics are probably telling us is that the choice to refrain from further crime commission is particularly challenging, particularly difficult for such a person. Therefore, she is less likely than a random person to refrain from crime commission, to choose not to commit crime. Now, on the background of these statistics, our defendant was faced with the choice whether to commit or not to commit more crime. And our defendant has made impressive efforts and remarkably succeeded to beat the odds and to choose not to commit more similar crimes. But then, just the moment that it looks like she has managed to escape this fate of a convicted criminal, the fate knocks on her door. As things turn out, she is falsely convicted based on the very statistics she has so impressively beaten. And because bad character evidence might lead to such tragic false convictions, it is possible, this is what my article suggests, that its admission is more risky and potentially more costly than admission of other evidence that might lead to sad and fortunate, but not necessarily also tragic false convictions. And Liot, you actually see a connection here between that defendant's story and an Aristotelian tragedy. So as we build towards that claim, first just remind us, what are the contours of an Aristotelian tragedy? So in the Aristotelian tragedy, what we see is a disaster that is brought about by the protagonist's own misjudgment or human error or human weakness. 
And all that at the beginning looks very limited, ends up exposing the protagonist to completely disproportionate outcomes, which are quite surprising. Now, in terms of the effects of this story on, let's say, the audience, because we are talking here about a theatrical notion, then the Aristotelian tragedy very clearly provokes pity and fear, and it is meant to provoke pity and fear. In terms of its structure, perhaps it, it has several characteristics that have been explored in the literature, but perhaps the most important ones for us is that the tragedy consists, first of all, or includes, first of all, an element of surprise. The surprise takes place when the full extent of the disaster is suddenly revealed. Now, second, there is what we call a reversal of situation where an event ends up having the opposite effect of that which it was supposed to have. Third, what we have is what we call a moment of recognition where the protagonist realizes the disaster. And fourth and last, there is a scene of suffering that captures the, the painful impact of the disaster on the Aristotelian protagonist. Tying these two threads together, how does the definition of an Aristotelian tragedy relate to your hypothetical story about a defendant facing character evidence or propensity evidence at trial? Yes, facing and um, in a way that leads to a false conviction, I think. So what we saw earlier, as I was describing the story of this defendant, and we saw how the disaster of a false conviction is brought about by the defendant's initial or the initial choice to commit the initial crime that put her in the close of the recidivism statistics and thereby assigned her what unfolds as an inescapable fate of a convicted criminal. So the story is very much the same story that we see repetitively in the Aristotelian tragedy, the same kind of structure of development of the plot. In terms of the effect, the course of development provokes in us pity and fear, fear from ourselves, from our weaknesses, from our ability to inadvertently bring on ourselves huge disasters because of our human weakness that we cannot control well enough. And the structure is also similar to that of an Aristotelian tragedy. There is an element of surprise, the first conviction based on the very statistics that the defendant has, in fact, we know, heroically beaten, is surprising. There is reversal of situation. The trial is supposed to expose the truth, to free the defendant from suspicion, but in fact, it ends up doing the exact opposite. There is a moment of recognition, and if we try to imagine it where the prosecution introduces bad character evidence and the defendant comes to realize that, wow, they are really in big trouble, the extent of her past error, the extent, the implications of her past choice to commit crime. There is also a scene of suffering that takes place where the court finds the defendant guilty and the impact on of this finding on the defendant manifests the defendant's suffering. I want to pull back here for just a second to ask why the law perhaps should care about tragedies at all. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, is a tragedy a legally relevant category? 
And if so, how exactly is it legally relevant? Yes, well, well, this is indeed a question. It's a question that I, I started exploring in the article, but I think there is much more to explore here and that I think about until today. And I guess at some level it touches on the connection between aesthetics and ethics, if there is such a connection at all. And there is quite a lot of very intriguing literature, a lot of very intriguing philosophy out there about this question. So I guess that one thing that can perhaps be said is that it is possible that very good art often captures some moral categories, moral concepts, even if only implicitly. And if this is true, then we can explore perhaps I was trying to suggest the possibility that a tragedy captures a situation where somebody could do something to prevent a disaster, but very understandably, even if perhaps unjustifiably didn't. So it's a situation where more effort had to be made, if not by the defendant, then by others who surround her in order to, to prevent a disaster. And I suggested in the article that perhaps when we let tragedies unfold, when we let them happen, we allow too much bad luck to rest on the shoulders of a defendant. That perhaps if we know that there is a risk that the defendant's initial error will turn into a complete disaster in this way, we should just undo this risk by just excluding the evidence. But there is definitely more to explore here. Let's move now to the normative proposals in your paper. So you note first that there's a significant problem that's hindering our ability to determine the best path forward regarding character evidence. What exactly is that problem? Yes, this problem is, is one that is often termed in the literature a problem of deep ignorance. Deep ignorance is a situation where we don't know the likelihood of certain outcomes that will come about, and we nevertheless need to decide what to do, even without knowing those likelihoods. And when it comes to bad character evidence, what we want to do is to choose between a rule of admission and the rule of exclusion. And in order to do that, we need to know the likelihoods of different types of errors, tragic or not tragic, that will come about if we opt for either a rule of exclusion or a rule of admission. Now, in order to know these likelihoods, we need to know how juries interpret bad character evidence or the absence of bad character evidence. And the trouble is that the very extensive empirical research that we have on this question actually leads to one important conclusion, which is that we don't know and possibly we cannot know exactly how jurors interpret bad character evidence. We cannot know how they interpret the absence of bad character evidence. And therefore, we don't really know the likelihood that the decisions would correlate with reality under each rule. And therefore, we cannot know the cost of errors that are associated with the rule of admission or with the rule of exclusion. And we need to decide without knowing those likelihoods. Can decision theory help resolve the problem at all? So it allows us to do more than we can do without it. Decision theory 
provides tools for decisions in conditions of deep ignorance. And it tells us all sorts of things about what we should do in those circumstances. But one important thing that it tells us about what we should do in these conditions is that the rational way of deciding would be to choose the course of conduct or the rule whose worst possible outcome is the least costly one. So, for example, if we see that exclusion would, at worst, worst case scenario, lead us to just sad, unlucky false convictions, but admission would lead, as a matter of worst case scenario, to tragic false convictions, then we should opt for exclusion. So, decision theory does give us tools that at least initially look promising in order to deal with this situation where we just don't know the likelihoods. Now, Leah, you just touched on this in your answer, but I want to kind of follow up with it. What does decision theory suggest about possible outcomes of a rule of admission or a rule of exclusion here? So this is a bit tricky, and I struggled with this as I was writing the article, because at first sight, it looks like it doesn't tell us much. It looks like under a rule of admission, under a rule of exclusion, no matter how we take it, always the worst case scenario would be the same, namely a tragic false conviction. And I was wondering if there is a way forward, and I explored this issue a little bit further. And then what I show in the article is that at second sight, when we try to look deeper at what we've got, and when we take into account Sanchericos' insight about the impact of admission on incentives for good behavior, then it becomes evident that there are degrees of tragic consequences. So even if under both rules we might end up with a tragic false conviction, under a rule of admission, the tragic elements of the outcome would be more significant, would be stronger. And therefore, what I concluded was that we have a reason, maybe not the strongest of reasons, but we do have a reason to prefer a rule of exclusion under which the consequences might be tragic, but less tragic than they would be under a rule of admission. Last question, Liat. What's next for the literature here? What type of paper would shed some maybe additional insight on this issue? So, at least for me, I think that there are two main questions that I'm left with and that I think should be explored. So The first is whether it is really impossible to obtain reliable data about how juries interpret bad character evidence or its absence. We have decades of empirical research that have gone into this, and the data that we have is still unsatisfactory. And I think Mike Redman in his book shows this in a way that is really impressive. And I think that maybe we should rethink our methods and try to find other ways to get the data if we ever want to make significant advances in the discussion of this question of the admissibility of bad character evidence. And the second 
more theoretical question that interests me concerns what I've said earlier about the connection between aesthetics and ethics. Should we really care about the tragic nature of the false conviction? And I suspect there is more than meets the eye here, and that we may need theorists with very broad knowledge to collaborate with before we can actually develop a better account of this connection and its relevance for the law, and before we can reconsider how helpful it might or might not be for us as legal theorists. Liad, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. So, to my mind, Liat's paper represents a wonderful fusion of law and ethics. In the UK, and certainly in the US, the ongoing conversation surrounding the normative desirability of the admission or exclusion of character evidence is usually dominated by debates over probative value, jury decision-making, or maybe even the empirical literature. And to be sure, these debates and those elements are centrally important factors. But Liot approaches character evidence in what I think is a new and refreshing way. By incorporating an ethics perspective, by recognizing the plight of defendants, Liot demonstrates that the risk of getting character evidence wrong, if you will, is not just academic, but can lead to tragedies of Aristotelian proportions. So as academics, I think we would all do well to follow Liot's lead, incorporating within our debates recognition of the ethical ramifications of outcomes. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host today, Alex Nunn, and I do hope that you will join us next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.